Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 15th of October, 2018, and this is episode 85. On today's programme, I talk to Professor Ingrid Sharp, Professor of German Culture and Gender History at the University of Leeds, about a new research project she is leading into the stories of female activists who participated in the revolutions that took place across Europe at the end of the Great War. Ingrid is a member of the Leeds Great War Mafia and the third member that I've interviewed on the podcast. I spoke to her over the interweb from her home. Hi Ingrid, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in the Great War, revolutionary women and political change that swept Europe after the armistice? Oh, uh, hi Tom, thanks for having me. Um, well, I'm a cultural historian and I work at the University of Leeds where there's a strong research interest in the First World War. Uh, we've got people like Alison Fell, Jessica Meyer and Holger Afflerbach and we're all part of the Legacies of War project based at Leeds. Now, I've got a particular interest in how organised and politically active women responded to the war. There were a lot of women in 1914 who'd been politically active for a couple of decades. They'd been campaigning for social reform or progressive causes and had international links. Uh, They'd also sworn international sisterhood and were committed to pacifism. I wondered what happened there when the war broke out. And that, that was my first way in to trying to look at political women and how they responded to the war. I found that most of the women's organisations in whatever country turned away from their international links when the war broke out. They suspended relations with the enemy women. But there is a small minority that worked together internationally for peace throughout the war. And then 1918 is another interesting moment because you've got these international organisations where the women haven't been maintaining contacts for four years. Sometimes they've been writing and saying terrible things about one another. And how could they get together again? And in the histories, mostly it's, well, the war ended in 1920, the first women's. And and you just think, well, how did they get from 1918 to 1920? And I find the whole period, 1917 to 1924, fascinating because things hadn't quite settled There were competing visions for a new social and political order being put forward. And it was a time when change really did seem possible. Empires had collapsed. There were new nations sprouting up. You know, revolutions were overthrowing ideas and and regimes that had, had been seemed immortal and seemed immutable. So change was really possible. And there were all these different visions. And women were part of that, too. They were active politically, most of the ones I'm interested in. And a lot of them, they had this clear vision for a new society. They were thoroughly committed to their cause. And yet, if you look at the story of the revolution, you can't find them anywhere And that, of course, intrigued me. And I was keen to find out more about these women and to think as well about why they weren't better known. Today, we're going to discuss some of your research into a number of these women who participated in in post-Great War revolutionary activity. Before we start, could you give us a a rough outline of what political changes were taking place in places like Germany and Austro-Hungary 
Okay, well, at, at a conference in Wolverhampton this September, uh, John, both John Horne and Jay Winter spoke about the post-war period as one of continued warfare. They, they both gave keynotes and, and John Horne called it a greater war that began in around, I think it was 1911 and ended in 1924. And Jay Winter uh, spoke of the post-war period as a second great war. And he said that uh, it was a, a war in which civilians were the targets. So we can see that the war just didn't end neatly on the 11th of November 1918, and certainly not at 11.11. It continued in the form of revolution, border conflicts and civil wars that didn't really end until all the peace treaties had been signed by the end of 1923. And there was hardly any country that remained unaffected by this social unrest. The forms it took were remarkably similar. It didn't seem to matter in it whether it, it was a, a victorious country or, or a, a defeated nation. You'll find bread riots, strikes, anti-war protests uh, in all the countries. But of course, in, uh, in, in Austria, in Hungary, in Germany, it was full-blown revolution. If you look at a place like Germany, if you look at Germany specifically, the instability was catastrophic. The currency collapsed. There were still food shortages because the Allied blockade didn't just stop. It continued until they signed the peace treaty. And politics was incredibly polarised between the far right and the extreme left. So there was a lot of violence and there was very little middle ground. The women, they'd been coping with shortages throughout the war. And the armistice didn't change very much at all. We know that the rise of the far right led to National Socialism and the Third Reich. Uh, we know that now. So it's easy to overlook the moments of hope and the possibility for change that were also part of this period. The Weimar Republic wasn't just a corridor to the Nazis and the Second World War that was inevitable from the moment of the revolution. It existed as a period in its own right, and the people didn't know the end of the story. And it's worth looking at those people who were fighting for change, often at enormous personal cost, taking huge risks. Uh, it's worth looking at what they thought they were doing, what their vision was, what was driving them. Now, women had been pushing for social and legal reform for decades, and the end of the war seemed like a moment where they could realise this vision. Uh, they wanted a fairer, more peaceful society. They'd been campaigning for the vote. They got the vote, uh, and they got it in exactly the same terms as the men. And this helped. All citizens over the age of 20 were allowed to vote, and they were allowed to stand for election, and there were no age barriers or property qualification or any other barriers at all, just a free vote, uh, regardless of gender and regardless of social class. So this is this is the political changes that start to happen in Germany towards the end of the war. Obviously, Britain had its, its own Franchise Act. Yes, indeed. But uh, there it was women over 30 and there were property qualifications as well. And in other places where women were enfranchised, uh, you see things like... Um, educational barriers. So women educated up to a certain level or people educated up to a certain level could vote, but that excluded a lot of women. And there was even the, the proxy vote where women who had lost husbands in the war could vote in their name. So Germany, I don't think you'll find a freer or less complicated uh, simpler uh, for, form of um, enfranchisement for women anywhere in, in uh, Europe. Now we come to your research project about some of these women. Tell us about what that aims to do and some of the other activities connected to it. Yes, now most people I think will have heard of Rosa Luxemburg. Many will have heard of Clara Titkin 
and possibly, I think within Germany, Tony Zender uh, will be a name because all of these had leading revolutionary roles. But there are so many women who are in, were in the thick of things that almost no one has heard of. And it's their stories that I'm interested in recovering. I'm not working alone. Uh, we were lucky enough to get AHRC follow-on funding for a project finding these women and sharing them with the world. I'm working with a group of researchers, particularly uh, Corinne Painter, who's a postdoc on the project and who's interested in what these women did next. And there are other academics who are working on the revolution, like Matthew Stibber at uh, Sheffield Hallam and Judith Shapour, who works on Hungary. And our project aims to write women back into the story and to make sure that people know more about them. The questions we're asking are what possibilities did women have for participation in the revolution and for shaping the post-revolutionary order? Of course, you have to start off with who were these women, what were their roles? But then it goes on to what extent, to what extent have women's stories been carried over into historical accounts? And I think most important of all, we have to ask what changes in our understanding of the revolution if we do include women in the story and if we take them seriously as revolutionaries in their own right. So as well as research publications and papers, Corinne and I have been working with the Bradford Peace Museum. Uh, we've created an exhibition called Ending War, Imagining Peace that shows this period, the end of the war from a German perspective. And we're working with the Bradford-based theatre company, Bent Architect, to develop a play, uh, which we've called Women of Action. And this opens in Leeds. Well, it opened in Leeds on October the 3rd, and it's touring in England and Germany until November. It can be hard to find some of these women. Some of them really didn't leave much of a trace. Uh, they were just named as uh, Frau Schmidt, for example, and there's really nothing we can do to find them. But others can be tracked the police were watching them and they filed reports which have survived. They were tried. So the court records have survived as well. Many of them were members of uh, organisations and there are membership lists that, uh, that allow us to find them. They wrote articles that were published. Some of them wrote letters that have also survived. They gave interviews, maybe in later life, and they wrote their memoirs. And it's two of the women who play central roles in our research and in the drama uh, they wrote their memoirs, they wrote about their revolutionary experience in much later life. And that enabled us to take details of their first-hand accounts as a basis for their characters and a basis for our understanding of the variety of roles that people, particularly women, could play in the revolution. So let's talk about some of these women. Now, you're researching, obviously, a large number of women, and we're going to look at five individuals today based in two cities in Germany, firstly two in Kiel and then three in Munich. I wonder whether you could start by giving us a bit of an idea of what's going on in Kiel and Munich at this time, because obviously there were a number of different revolutions happening across Germany. OK, well, Kiel in, in North Germany is where the revolution actually started. The focus in commemoration has all been on the sailors' uprising and the events after that. And it, it was, you know, a terribly exciting period. It, uh, it started when sailors refused to obey orders, uh, in Wilhelmshaven, which is just up from Kiel, you know, reachable through through the Kiel Canal. But soldiers on uh, on ships in the German Navy were ordered to go out in a magnificent gesture, which was basically a suicide mission. They refused to do this and they were arrested 
and they took them to Kiel for imprisonment and trial. And this proved to be quite a mistake because uh, along with the sailors who'd been arrested came shiploads of uh, very disaffected sailors. And uh, they were allowed into the centre of Kiel, which is a socialist stronghold. And the, the Kiel population, you know, it, all it took was this spark, really. And the Kiel population responded and all their frustration and anger about the war erupted in strikes, in demonstrations, uh, which culminated in the sailors who'd been arrested being freed uh, and the people of Kiel taking over the governance of the town. So, in just two days from that point, that was the 5th of November in Kiel, and in just two days from the 5th to the 7th of November, the revolution had spread down to Munich in the south in just two days. And then two days after that, on November the 9th, the Kaiser had fled and the First Republic on German soil had been declared in Berlin. And two more days after that, the armistice was signed on November the 11th. So it's an incredibly short period and it's all very, very exciting and significant. But what's left out, if you focus too much on what the sailors were doing, what the soldiers were doing, and then you stop your story of the revolution on the 9th of November, what you're ignoring is the revolutionary context that made, made, made it happen. So it was the catastrophic shortages of food, uh, of fuel, of the, the strikes, the bread riots, the anti-war demonstrations, the clandestine preparations for the end of the war as well. Uh, so the, the sailors' uprising was definitely the spark, but the population in Kiel, which is traditionally a working-class city, was absolutely ready to catch that spark and to spread the fire. And it was the women who were at home who were at the forefront of protest and who carried the revolution. So who was involved in Kiel? Right, well, the, the women that we're focusing on in Kiel are women who left accounts of their life uh, they don't appear in any of the history books and, and they're not very well known, but they had important roles in the revolution. Neither of them shot anyone. Neither of them actually stormed any barricades, but they were important in the communications. And the communications and supplies are an absolutely essential part of the revolution. And these women, I think, stand for the many women who played a key role in this. So the first woman uh, is Gertrud Volker. She was born in 1896, so she was in her early 20s. She was a lifelong social democrat and had got a job in the trade union house that was at the heart of the revolution in Kiel. Uh, she wrote her eyewitness account in 1974, so she didn't, but she did keep a diary at the time as well. So we have her words at the time and her reflections later. Before the war, she had joined a, a radical socialist youth group, and she described this as self-conscious and revolutionary, selbstbewusst und revolutionär. Her motivation was, um, in her own words, the fight for freedom, democracy, for human dignity, for social justice and solidarity. And during the revolution, she remained working at the trade union house, which was the hub. That's where all the, uh, the, the workers, the soldiers and the sailors gathered to find out what was going on, to discuss policy, to discuss tactics. And uh, despite the revolution as well, they needed paperwork. They needed their paperwork to be in order. And that was Foker's job. 
she sort of signed the letters of dismissal so that they could pick up their, their pensions and their pay and so that they could uh, re-enter civilian life uh, without being um, you know, subject to military discipline. Now, Foka went on to have a long career in local politics and social welfare policy after the revolution. So her activities during the revolution are very much in keeping with her political activism and with her views that she then retained throughout her life. There was another woman that we're very interested in, and she was even younger. Marta Riedel was born in 1903, which means she was only 11 at the start of the war and was 15 in 1918. She was from a working class background. She grew up in Kiel. Her dad was a tailor and he, uh, she describes him as a, you know, a strongly unionised man. And the, the whole family were committed socialists. Riedel describes how she had to actually escape from her school. Uh, her school had locked in the girls and told them, you know, an absolutely ridiculous lie. They said, you know, we have to keep you in here because the Turks are coming because they didn't want these girls getting involved in the revolution. Maybe it was for their safety or maybe it's because they knew that some of them would actually join in. And Riedel actually escaped from, from um, this sort of semi-captivity and she ran straight to the Union House, which was... Uh, as, as I've said, it was the organisational centre of the Kiel Socialists. And when she got there, because she was so young and she looked really innocent, she was recruited as a runner. And she ran across town between groups, carrying messages, carrying supplies. And above all, she had a, a friend, I think, reading between the lines, he was a bit sweet on her. And he was training to be a naval officer so she could get information about the officer's plans back to the revolutionaries. And in that way, I mean, certainly in her account, she prevented a number of plots to regain control by the officers. Um, and she said afterwards that no one paid any attention to her. She, she said she, she, looked, she just looked like a little girl who was flitting around the town like a sparrow. But she was in enormous danger doing all this. Uh, she could have been stopped and searched and the supplies or the messages could have been found on her. She could have been killed by a stray bullet. She could have been caught up in the, in the action. And in my book, the risks she took and her commitment to the socialist vision make her as much of a revolutionary um, as any of the men in the streets during those days. And afterwards, she, she, she kept working for the men of, of, who were the main revolutionaries. And she played an important role in unionising the workforce and tried very hard to protect the gains uh, that the workers had made during the revolution. So now we turn to Munich, which obviously has a completely different um, context and, and, and tra political traditions in the south of Germany. What were women doing there? Well, women actually were uh, welcomed by Kurt Eisner, who was the leader of the revolution. He was a pacifist and he, he was... Um, you know, very progressive indeed, and welcomed uh, women into the Revolutionary Council. So unlike in Kiel, where they played this unofficial role and they were supportive of the revolution but weren't allowed to have any actual recognised roles, uh, Kurt Eisner drew uh, women um, into his, uh, his Revolutionary Council. 
And a couple of the, the, the women who were in the Revolutionary Council were much older than Marta Riedl and Gertrud Volker. But uh, there was also an extremely young woman who is in the tradition of, of Riedl and Volker. And, and I think that suggests that, um, you know, they weren't alone because these, these women were very, very young, but they were already absolutely committed socialists. They knew exactly what was going on. They supported the revolution to the hilt. And in Munich, you've got uh, a young woman, Hilda Kramer, and she's just 18 in 1918. She was born in, in 1900. And she decided already that she was going to dedicate her life to the cause of socialism. Nothing else mattered to her. You know, she said, I, I, you know, in the dramatic way that young women have, maybe, uh, I'm, I'm prepared to lay down my life for this cause. And she certainly took risks. She was absolutely at the centre of events in Munich. She wrote the revolutionary flyers. She actually signed some of these flyers. So there is a, a record of her activism in the public domain. She says that she discussed um, the policies with the revolutionary leaders and they trusted her. They took her to Berlin. Well, uh, maybe they didn't have much choice in the matter, but she was one of the very few women who went to Berlin as the delegate of the international communists in December 1918. And the police certainly thought that she was dangerous. She was arrested in January 1919. That was, in fact, by Kurt Eisner's government because she was on the extreme left wing, which was uh, challenging Eisner's rather more moderate view of the revolution and challenging it to become more revolutionary, more, more violent. When she was released, she was uh, imprisoned again by the White Guard, by the Freikorps in 1919. And that was much more dangerous because uh, while there was little chance of uh, Kurt Eisner's government actually executing her in May 1919, that was a real possibility. She was in a cell with uh, Rosa Levigny on June the 5th when uh, Levigny's husband, the communist leader Eugen Levigny, was executed. And Karma was tried for high treason. Luckily, she was well connected her brother-in-law actually was, uh, he, he went on to become quite a prominent Nazi, but uh, he intervened. I don't know whether out of family feeling for his wife, uh, so that she, she wasn't going to lose a beloved sister, or it could just have been that uh, he didn't think that his family standing would be enhanced by having a sister-in-law who'd been executed as a revolutionary. So instead of uh, being shot, which she could have been, she was exiled from Bavaria, so kicked out of Bavaria. The police confiscated all her papers, and uh, these luckily have been preserved, so we can read those now. She wrote a letter, um, sorry, she wrote lots of letters, but she wrote a memoir in later life, which was kept by her family and has now been published. Nakama continued her fight for social justice. She went to Moscow, and um, then in 1937, she fled. Obviously, she's not going to be popular uh, when the National Socialists are in power. She wasn't going to be very popular in Stalinist Russia either. So luckily for her, she, she found exile in Britain and got involved in labour politics. And she actually contributed to the drawing up of the British National Health Service Act in 1945 or 46, I forget. And she, there's a local connection with Karma, so we like her very much for that reason. Um, her son Desmond was professor of chemistry at Leeds University, and she lived with him for the last five years of her life and died in hospital in Otley, which is just up the road uh, from 
my house where I'm talking to you now. And she died in 1974. And the fact that she could be so central to the revolution, even though she's not officially a great leader of the revolution, but not mentioned at all by any of the male revolutionaries who knew her and worked with her, it should make us pause a bit when we say, you know, that the male eyewitnesses that are our only account don't mention the women, so therefore they weren't there. I think they just had a little bit of a, a blind spot to the women. They didn't see them as revolutionaries either. So there, there was another key group who were important in Munich, and these were the pacifist feminists. They'd spent the entire war organising and developing their vision for a post-war society. And the best known of these are the lawyer, Dr. Anita Augsburg, born in 1857, and her partner, Lida Gustava Heimann, who was born in 1868. So these were much older women, and they were active both in the north, up in Hamburg, and in Munich during the war and the revolution. And these two had been campaigning for liberal political causes, including suffrage and um, against uh, the state regulation of prostitution since the 1890s. And they saw it as absolutely their right to take a leading role in the revolution and to shape the new society along the lines that they'd been working out all those years. So progressive, democratic and pacifist lines. And they wrote memoirs in 1941. They were, went into exile in 1933. They were top of the list or, you know, very close to the top of the list of people to be shot without trial once the National Socialists came to, to power because they had been such a thorn in the side of, uh, of, of, of men and of people who didn't believe in progressive liberal ideas uh, and who believed in war as well. So uh, they were luckily in Switzerland in 1933 uh, on holiday and they just stayed there. So all their papers were destroyed uh, or confiscated and um, they, they remained in Switzerland and, until uh, they died uh, in the, I think they, they died in 1943, both of them, but but not at the same time. They wrote their memoirs in 1941, and these contain absolutely vivid recollections of the revolution in both Hamburg and Munich. And I think that from what they write, we can capture some of this sense of, you know, at last, this is what we've been waiting for. So at the first meeting in Hamburg, um, where you know a lot of, of women and women's groups gathered, uh, speaking about the revolution, welcoming it, pledging it their support and saying, you know, the, at last we were free, at last women can talk about, you know, their vision for the future, their hatred of the war and their determination to create a peaceful society. And as soon as they could, they presented themselves to Kurt Eisner, where they were welcomed in to the Revolutionary Council and actually were able to play um, a political role in, in shaping the Republic of Bavaria. But they, they, weren't, they weren't entirely happy with the way things were going on. They were, in fact, very, very critical of the way that women continue to be excluded from political life, their con contributions downplayed and perspectives marginalised. Uh, they didn't think it was enough that a handful of chosen women were part of the, uh, you know, of, of the, the National Council. They wanted ordinary women to be brought into politics, and they were, um, you know, very frustrated in in this aim. Anita Augsburg tried to persuade the council to put up uh, women-only councils because she saw that as one way of drawing women into politics 
until they felt more confident and were able to sort of take take their role properly in in mixed councils. And uh, they also criticised the demobilisation policies that prioritised men over women, regardless of whether those women had any other source of income. And of course, because the workers and, and uh, soldiers' councils would, were elected at the workplace, if you've lost your job, or if you're a newcomer, or if you're at a very low position, or you have a precarious position in that workplace, then it's very, very unlikely that your fellow workers are going to elect you as a member of the workers' council in the ordinary way. So these women-only councils would have been a way of drawing more women into politics and countering the effects of some of the discriminatory um, practices that were happening uh, all over Germany. And that the revolutionary councils, they didn't see a problem with it. They saw the contribution that the soldiers had made as absolutely paramount and that these soldiers deserved the jobs. And the women who had been you know, ruining their health, making the munitions, starving on the home front, they didn't really deserve any consideration. And I think the expectation was, well, they've probably got a man to look after them, um, which was... Uh, you know, in, in, in many cases, highly unlikely. These women were committed pacifists and their role in the revolution was to prevent violence as far as possible. And they they joined with other women of the left, even though they were middle class women. They really did. They embraced the socialist end of the spectrum. And they, they it was one of the very few instances where socialist women were willing to work with bourgeois women. They, they formed an alliance with other leftist women who were also pacifist and tried to prevent um, the violence of the revolution itself. So stepping in to prevent executions by revolutionaries of revolutionaries or of people accused of um, various crimes during the revolution. And they even tried to intervene uh, between the White Guard, the, the Freikorps, and the revolutionaries to stop the bloodshed that happened um, in the summer of 1919. So it leads us on to an, the next question: Is why will, why have women been written out of their of the history of these revolutions and the role that they played? Well, at the time, I think I've given an indication of some of the ways that women were excluded at the time by the revolutionaries who had a hard time seeing women as political beings. And this was not really their fault because women had been excluded from politics and they had been excluded from trade unions. There was a law prohibiting women's um, attendance at political meetings uh, and that had only been repealed in 1908. So women had, um, ha had not had very long to develop uh, a political identity uh, except a clandestine one. I mean, you've got a paradox in that, you know, women's political activity is banned in most parts of Germany until 1908. And yet you've got one of the strongest and the most politically engaged women's socialist groups. But officially, they couldn't exist. They couldn't, certainly couldn't join any parties. And also, if you're seeing revolution in quite a narrow way as being carried by the Kiel sailors, well, you're not going to find women there. They weren't in the armed forces either. They weren't really prominent. There were some. There was about 60 women were killed in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting. So they were obviously there. But um, And even where a tiny proportion of women did gain access to quite narrowly defined political arenas, such as membership of the Soviets, of the revolutionary councils, uh, we have these figures at around four to five percent. 
But even there, um, I mean, I think that's quite significant given the barriers to their their participation in those arenas. But their presence was quickly written out of the account. And I've got uh, an example of um, the playwright and revolutionary Ernst Toller. Now, we know from multiple women's accounts that they were working really closely with him. Some of them hid him when he was trying to escape, uh, when his name was sort of top of the list for for, uh, imprisonment, trial and execution. A lot of uh, the women that he'd worked with hid him at the risk of their lives. And they mention it. It's quite a big deal in their lives. But he doesn't mention a single one of them in his own memoirs. And he doesn't really put them in his plays either in any credible way. And I do wonder about that, why that was. And I think it's because his romantic view of himself as a revolutionary has him as a lone figure, um, you know, rather than someone who's a team, you know, part of a team, part of a collective and dependent on other people for his very survival. It just didn't fit with him. Uh, Rosa Levine, uh, the the wife of um, Eugen Levine, who's better known than her, but she was a, a revolutionary activist in her own right. She was quite disparaging about uh, Toller. She called him the Bavarian Lenin um, and said that uh, he thought he was playing a character in, in one of his own dramas. So what changes about our understanding of the German revolutions if we focus more on the role of women? I think that if you write women's political activism back into the story and you pay attention to women's political cultures at the time, it's not just an addition to the story. It changes it fundamentally. And and history until now really has focused on male arenas and places where you are much less likely to find women. So if we look If we look at women and we take them seriously as revolutionaries, that means that we have to broaden our definition of the revolution uh, so that we look at the revolutionary context, so that we take these food riots, these strikes, these demonstrations, the expressions of anti-war feeling seriously as important for the revolutionary context. Uh, And my belief is that without that, where was the spark going to actually land? Um, You know, the small group of keel sailors And even the soldiers couldn't have carried a revolution on their own. So the mood of the masses, the the fact that uh, vast numbers of people are absolutely sick of the war by this point, and not just sick of the war in a kind of unpolitical way, but had taken steps to organise already and were just waiting for this spark is absolutely significant. And women were key to that because most of the home front was made up of women. Ingrid, where can people find out more about your research? Well, a lot of the work um, that I've done is being collaborative. So I do need to mention my partner, Corinne Painter, who's been working with me for the last 18 months. Uh, She's put a website together And uh, that's where you can access a lot of the background stories of the women that we've talked about today and um, many more of them. She's put together a database of 256 women who identified as revolutionaries or have um, a a recognised revolutionary role. Um, I'd also like to mention Bent Architect, who's, uh, who are the theatre company that I'm working with. They've also been working with us on the research side. Uh, you know, I, we shouldn't kid ourselves as academics that uh, we, we're going to our non-academic partners and we're giving them, you know, the fruits of our research, which they take 
gratefully and then do something with. Um, there's an awful lot of research been going on by the theatre group themselves. And some of the stories that are absolutely key to my understanding of the revolution were stories that were found by research done by Jude Wright of, of Bent Architect or investigations by Mick Martin, who read a lot about Ernst Toller. Um, so this joint research that we've all been doing together has gone into a new play that quite literally puts these women centre stage. Um, so if you come to one, uh, a performance of one of these plays, you'll find Gertrud Volker, you'll find Martha Riedel and Hilde Kamer um, taking really central roles uh, in, in the drama. So there's also a fixed exhibition that can be looked at, uh, that can be booked through the Bradford Peace Museum. There's a touring exhibition that's accompanying the play or that can also be booked if people want to learn more about this. Corinne and I are happy to travel to give a talk about our women to most audiences. We've spoken to schools, uh, to Quaker groups, to local history groups and can bring along the exhibition there as well. Uh, you could also follow us on Twitter. We're tweeting under at Revolution of 18. Uh, so for Revolution November 18 shortened and Bent Architect uh, have got a Twitter account at Bent Architect Co. Ingrid, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about these women. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>